0: So here we are in Murray County, Tennessee. Now I'm telling you, Murray County, you better say that right or we're going to know that you ain't from around here. Murray County, Tennessee, M-A-U-R-Y, M-A-U-R-Y. And for all the world, that looks like that ought to be Maury, maybe, Maury County. Well, don't say Maury County, because we know you're not from around here, it's Murray County, right? Do you know how our county got its name, Murray County? Usually, as is the case here, it's named after somebody. And the somebody that our county is named after is Major Abraham Poindexter Murray. And he was a Revolutionary War veteran. He came to settle in Middle Tennessee. He later was a member of the Tennessee legislature representing Williamson County. He actually donated the land and laid out the plan for the city of Franklin. And so he's a pretty prominent guy. Uh, In 1807, so that's more than 200 years ago, right? In 1807, Murray County was formed out of part of what used to be Williamson County, plus some adjoining Indian lands They took part of Williamson County and brought in some Indian lands and they formed what we have today, Murray County. And our county was named for Major Abraham Poindexter Murray. That man, for whom our county is named, was an uncle of another famous man with the same family name, Murray. In this instance, the guy that we're talking about is Matthew Fontaine Murray. And he actually maybe is a little more famous than his famous uncle. Uh, This man was an astronomer, this Matthew Fontaine Murray. He was an astronomer. He was a naval officer. He was a historian. He was an oceanographer. He was a meteorologist. His nickname was pathfinder of the seas. He he is to this day considered to be the father of modern oceanography and naval meteorology. And tonight we want to look briefly at something that he discovered. Matthew Fontaine Murray was the discoverer of paths in the sea. We want to talk about that tonight And as well, just briefly, some other amazing scientific proofs of the Bible's inspiration. Thanks for being here tonight. We appreciate you very much. It's been a gorgeous day in Middle Tennessee. We've had great opportunities to come together and worship. We know that some of our folks are sick and others are being forced into self-quarantine because they've been exposed to sickness. So there's some things that have got our numbers down pretty significantly But it's still great to be able to be together, and we appreciate the opportunity so much. We thank you for being here. Again, tonight we have those who are visiting, and we're glad, and we hope you'll come again every time you have a chance to be here. What about this paths of the sea? Well, this Matthew Fontaine Murray picked up on something that was mentioned in Psalm chapter 8, at verse 8. We'll read that in just a minute, but... A little background on this man and his family life. Er, his, his father was an extremely religious individual, and early in his life, his whole large family would gather for what we would probably refer to as morning and evening devotionals. Very often, the father would lead them in readings of the Psalms, so much so that in later life, Matthew Fontaine Murray could recite almost all of the psalms. If you gave him a book, a a chapter and verse in psalms, he could quite literally quote those verses. He knew the psalms very well. He suffered an injury. He was in the Navy, but he suffered an injury. And because of that, his naval career was cut short. And he began to devote his time to the study of oceanography and meteorology. And In the course of those studies and remembering his familiarity with the book of Psalms, he focused in on a statement in Psalm 8, verse 8. Psalm 8, verse 8 says, The fowl of the air and the fish of the sea and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea. Notice that last phrase, the paths of the sea. And that caused him to think and to begin to investigate and to discover that there are subsurface currents with regular circulation patterns in the oceans. That wasn't known before. Uh, So Matthew Fontaine Murray lived in the 1800s. Before the 1800s, it had never been known that there were paths of the sea. The book of Psalms said it was so. I don't suppose anybody else had ever really picked up on it, but he picked up on it. And he was able to actually chart out and map various predominant ocean currents. For instance, before this time, no one ever understood what we now know as the very powerful Gulf Stream current that flows out of the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean and goes north and east carrying warm water and nutrients into the North Atlantic. Uh, of course, very very beneficial for the ocean life in the North Atlantic, but it also provides a uh, a relative habitable climate for parts of Europe, England, and and Europe. England, if you look at a map, England uh, is as far north as Northern Quebec in Canada. It's pretty far north, but they have a relatively mild climate. It's because of the Gulf Stream current. It wasn't known or understood before Matthew Fontaine Murray discovered it. Now, again, notice he used Psalm 8. He said, the the psalm says something there. I want to see if it's so. And he began to investigate it and found out that it was so. That's pretty interesting if you stop to think about that. But that is just one example of, of what we would refer to as a form of evidence called scientific foreknowledge. The Bible speaks of things that science would later come along to discover or to confirm, but it spoke about them long before men understood the principles. That's what we're illustrating here with this paths of the sea. They were there. They've apparently always been there. They were there when the book of Psalms was written about What, 3,000 years ago or so? Men didn't know it, but they were there. Men came along and discovered it much later and showed that the Bible was true. This idea of scientific foreknowledge is one of the powerful proofs that we have that the Bible actually is inspired of God. Now, let's make this point. The Bible was never intended to be a science book. It's not a science book. That wasn't the intention as to why the Bible was written. But if and when it speaks of things that science has the ability to prove or confirm, we would expect it to be accurate, right? If it's from God, who we claim is the creator of all things and therefore the one who established all natural laws that govern our physical environment, if the Bible says something and if the Bible really is from God, then we would expect. That science could come along later and prove it, and that, in fact, is what has happened. So I want to stress to you, the science, uh, the, the, the Bible was never intended as a science textbook, yet it touches on lots of things that science can either prove or, or, or deny, and in every instance, the Bible ends up proving those things. What I want to do, just briefly, is, is look at some examples of that sort of thing. Again, our purpose is to fortify our faith in the Bible. It really is from God. The only way the Bible could have contained the things it contains is because God inspired men to write it down who would not have known about such things on their own. When when Matthew Fontaine Murray read Psalm 8, verse 8, he read about those paths in the sea. Men didn't know anything about paths in the sea when the book of Psalms was written, a thousand years before Christ. They didn't know anything about paths in the sea. They sure didn't know anything about the Gulf Stream current. But that was that phrase was included there. A scientist like Matthew Fontaine Murray could come along later and mine out that little nugget of information from the scriptures. And that's that's our idea that we want to just real briefly illustrate in our lesson tonight. This is too little for you to read, I know, but I wanted to get all of this on one chart. We'll try to highlight some of this for for your benefit. This is a list of, of just numerous examples of things that the Bible reveals that the men who wrote the Bible could have never known. They would have never understood these principles. And almost certainly when they wrote them down, they didn't even understand what they were writing them down. It was because of God's inspiration. And I'm not, I, I promise you, I'm not going to make you look at all of these examples, but look at just a few. For instance, one of the things that the Bible describes is that the earth is held in place by invisible forces. Now, we know that now, right? We understand that our planet earth is held in orbit around the sun, by virtue of gravitational forces right and so the sun is an enormous mass out there and and the earth has mass and so there's a gravitational attraction between those things and, and that invisible force of gravity keeps us in our relative position to the sun which is obviously essential to our existence here on this planet men didn't understand those things now that that seems normal to us i mean we We study about those things in elementary school science class, but what you've got to remember is that men did not always know that. For the longest time, they didn't understand that. In the days that the Bible was written, it would have been the considered opinion of knowledgeable people that the earth was held in place, I mean, there was, it was commonly thought that the the earth was held on the back of a strong man. Greek mythology even named him Atlas, right? And, uh, and the earth is there's this g- giant, powerful man and the earth rests on his shoulders. Other ancient concepts believed that the earth was carried about on the back of elephants or giant turtles. Now that seems crazy to us. Are you serious? But if you lived back then, that's what you would have thought and nobody would have imagined you crazy for believing it. That's what people believed. But that's not what that, now. Here is my: What if the Bible had said there are four giant elephants or turtles carrying the Earth around? We've come along now and figured out there's no there's no elephants, there's no turtles, there's no Atlas holding the Earth in place. The Earth is held in place by invisible forces. We we identify those invisible forces as the force of gravity. That was not known until the mid-1600s. Now it's common knowledge the earth is held in place by invisible forces. But that's a fairly recent, just about a 400-year-old, 350-year-old discovery. But notice what we read in the book of Job. In Job chapter 26, verse 7 he stretcheth out the north over the empty place and hangeth the earth upon nothing. The Lord hangs the earth upon nothing. Now there's a little, that's just a phrase, right? It's not a deep scientific explanation of the matter, but it's a true statement, right? It's a true statement that men of that day would not have known on their own. How, how could it have been real? We think the book of Job maybe is one of the oldest books in our Bible. How would it have been known to write that down? Again, we're saying it's, it's a, this is a, a, a little hint of scientific foreknowledge that proves that the Bible had to have been inspired. Here's a very common one, that the earth is round. Of course the earth is round. You know, uh, we even make fun of people these days. We say, yeah, he probably still believes in the flat earth. You know, we, we, we just use that as an illustration of a complete absurdity. The earth is flat. Everybody knows better than that. People didn't always know better than that. When did Columbus discover the Western Hemisphere? You school kids should remember this from history. 1492. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. I, never, I don't know why I always remember that expression from school. but for, So, right about 1500... And you know what they told Columbus or anybody else who would try to do something like he was doing? You're going to sail out there far enough and you're going to fall off the edge. Because the earth is flat and you get out there far enough, you're a goner, you'll fall off the edge. They believed in the flat. That was consensus scientific opinion. The earth is flat. Now we know way better than that now. We've even got spacecraft hundreds of miles out in space Men have gone as far as the moon and shot pictures back at the earth. And you know what? It's not flat. It's it's round. We know that for sure. And it's it's common knowledge today. But it wasn't always common knowledge. It's not what people really believed for the longest time. It wasn't understood until the 15th century that the earth is round. But notice what the prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 22. Isaiah forty twenty It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants there are, thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. He sitteth upon the circle of the earth. That word, by the way, suggests a sphere or a globe. And so the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah lived 700 years before Jesus. If Jesus lived about 2,000 years ago, Isaiah was writing about 2,700 years ago, people 2,700 years ago believed in the flat earth. And they thought they were scientifically enlightened when they took that view. The Bible didn't take that view. What if the Bible said, the earth is flat. Don't go too far, you'll fall off the edge. And now we come along and we figure, there's no edge to fall off of. The earth is not flat, it's round, you won't fall off the edge, go as far as you want. You won't fall off the edge. But what if the Bible said the earth is flat? And now we know it's not flat. We'd have to say, well, the Bible can't be trusted. The Bible surely is not inspired. It it can't be from some being called God because it contains scientific inaccuracies. It doesn't contain scientific inaccuracies. That's a point. You see, it's really a simple point. That's our point. Here's another one. Both man and woman possess the seed of life. Now, we understand that, right? That both the man and the woman contribute an element to the formation of life, right? The woman's egg, the man's sperm, and when they join, life begins. We understand that, that both the man and the woman have an element of life to contribute when life is formed. That's not what was always believed. In fact, it was very commonly believed that man had the life, and the woman simply carried the life in her womb, and the life matured in her womb until birth. But all of life was in the man. He possessed the power of life. The woman didn't have any part of that, other than she just basically provided the womb for a, for a, an incubator, if you will, a place for that life to to mature or or to nurture that life until it it came out and was born. Again, that was considered scientific opinion. That was what people believed until the 17th century. So again, that's fairly recent times. We understand, now we understand the reproductive process, don't we? We understand it very well. It's the scientific matter that we can investigate and know with certainty. But the Bible has always suggested that both man and woman contribute an element to a new life. In Genesis chapter 3, I think you remember very well, after Adam and Eve sinned, in Genesis chapter 3, God was expressing the, 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 the punishment for the sin that had taken place. And He was suggesting there are going to be consequences For what you've done, he stated a consequence to the woman and to the man. uh, But he also suggested a consequence to the serpent who had placed the temptation before Eve. Uh, Look in Genesis 3, verse 14. The Lord said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee And the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his uh, heel. The seed of the woman. In Genesis 3, in the very early history of humanity, notice, the seed of woman. There was a seed in the woman. Now, join that. Go over in chapter 22 of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 22, to Abraham... He said in verse 18, part of the promise to Abraham, and in thy seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. Did you get that? To Abraham, to a man, he said something about his seed or his dependence. Early on, the Bible said man and woman both carry an element of the life when it's formed. There's a seed in the woman, there's a seed in the man. They come together, life is formed. The Bible was saying that from the earliest of times. Men didn't know that till the 17th century. Again, amazing foreknowledge. Men couldn't have written that on their own. Here's the one that we sort of highlighted in our lesson tonight, what what Matthew Fontaine Murray uh, discovered about the paths of the sea. Again, he, he... First published that idea in 1854, but it was recorded in Psalm 8, verse 8, about 3,000 years ago, and so again, that, that that's sort of a neat example of the principle we're describing tonight. Here's another one that I think is kind of cool. Men have discovered that the most seaworthy ship is built on a on a ratio of 30 feet, or 30 to 5 to 3. So the length should be 30. The width should be 5. The height should be 3. So again, this would be be length to width to height. The ratio should be 35-3. They've figured that out. And now they build giant ocean-going vessels to those proportions. Uh, the, the big super tankers that go across the ocean are built to these kinds of proportions. Because it has been discovered scientifically that this is the most stable kind of... Crater. So you could build it. You could take that ratio and you could make it... Multiply that by 100... And so you'd have a 3,000 foot long ship uh, that's 500 feet wide and 300 feet tall. I mean, you use the ratio. But if you're going to build a ship and you want it to be stable, you're going to build it to those ratios. That, that, that ratio in a, in a vessel is almost self riding It's almost impossible to capsize it or flip it over. Well, you know, again, that was discovered in 1860. But actually, that ratio was revealed a long time before that. Because that's the ratio that God told Noah to build the ark to. In Genesis chapter 6, in Genesis chapter 6 at verse uh, 15, this is the fashion which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, the height of it 30 cubits. That's that ratio. And again, that was revealed in, uh, in to, to Noah in the early in early times. Noah couldn't have known that. Noah had never built a ship. And, Noah, and no one had ever before or since experienced anything like the, the global flood in the days of Noah. But there's a revelation there that science again has come along and proved thereafter. Let me give you one more. I don't want to weary you with the point. Here's one more. Do you understand the water cycle? What we mean by the water cycle is that you know that our earth is like three-fourths of the earth's surface is covered with water, right? Our planet earth is principally covered with water. The water in the oceans is evaporated into the atmosphere it comes over dry land, and it spills out. Okay, so how come the oceans don't go dry, and how come we're not just completely flooded over all the time? You know, just recently, uh, was it last week or two weeks ago, When uh, I guess it was just last weekend, when, when the remnants of that hurricane Delta came up this way. And it rained and it rained and it rained. That water came from the oceans and was transported up here. How come the oceans don't go dry? Because when it rains, the water runs off, goes to the rivers, the rivers flow to the sea, and the cycle continues. And so the water that falls here runs off, goes back to the oceans, it's evaporated, it comes back here again, and run, it's called the water cycle. Men didn't understand the water cycle, how it worked until about the 17th century. Men got to thinking how that could happen. But Solomon wrote about it, again, approximately 3,000 years ago. Solomon wrote about this. Look in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 7. Or, yeah, verse 7. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 7. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. The water cycle. Solomon wrote about the water cycle. We now know it's absolutely true, and we take it for granted that the knowledge of that, that men always understood. They didn't always understand that. But the Bible had spoken of it. There's lots of other examples there. I've just picked out a few highlights. Again, just to emphasize a simple point. The Bible's not a science book, but it does talk about things that science could either confirm or deny. And the fact is that everything is confirmed. As men have discovered more things, if you look at this list of of these dates, really it's principally been in the last 300, 400 years when men have figured these things out. Men have figured these things out fairly recently. I mean, Three or four hundred years ago seems like a long time, but is, that's, not, that's not a long time compared to how long the Bible has been around. The Bible spoke of these things and science has just come along and confirmed that it was so and proved it. And that's good because if it had happened otherwise, if the, if the Bible had said something and science came along and positively proved that it could not possibly be so, we would be in a dilemma. In fact, it would be a strong argument against the Bible, but that's not our problem because the Bible has been confirmed again and again and again. Matthew Fontaine Murray. There's going to be a quiz on this, guys. Who discovered the paths in the sea? Matthew Fontaine Murray. He's not the guy for whom our Murray County is named. Our county is named for his uncle, Abraham Poindexter Murray. He was the guy that, he was the Tennessee statesman, and he's, he if our county is named for him, but it was his nephew, Matthew Fontaine Murray, who discovered the path in the sea. All right, thanks everybody for listening. I hope that's an encouragement to us, fortifying our faith, making us believe even more and more that the Bible surely is God's revelation to us. It's God speaking to us. It's God telling us what he wants us to know and what he wants us to do. Have you obeyed the Lord? Have you become his child through obeying the simple gospel plan? If not, we hope you'll make that decision. If you're a Christian already, but you need the prayers of the saints, if there's anything we can do to help, let us know. Always stand and sing this song.